Long history. Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. The 40th Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain. The World War II Prime Minister who did not bring peace in our time. Prime Minister from the 28th of May 1937 to the 10th of May 1940. Hello everyone, how are you? I hope you're well. And welcome to another episode of Long History's Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. This is our weekly series where we choose a Prime Minister and then answer such questions as who was this person, what did they achieve, how did they get in office and how did they leave office. In that way we just hope to build up a bit of a profile of that person so if it piques your interest it's a springboard to start your own research. Just while you're here, as well as looking at Prime Ministers, here on Long History we take source documents from history and split them up into chunks of around 10 minutes. We've covered many famous explorers including Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh. So when you've listened to this episode about Neville Chamberlain, there's lots to explore here on Long History. But now let's get started with a look at Neville Chamberlain, who was the Prime Minister in the lead up to World War II. This is Random UK Prime Minister of the Week, the 40th Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, the World War II Prime Minister who did not bring peace in our time. He was Prime Minister from the 28th of May 1937 to the 10th of May 1940. Few pre-World War II Prime Ministers are as famous as Neville Chamberlain. Yet, few Prime Ministers are as famous for something so specific to history. He was the Prime Minister between 1937 and 1940, and this was perhaps one of the most historic and dangerous, even existential moments that any Prime Minister has ever had to face. He was the only Prime Minister to stem from England's second city, Birmingham, and he was promoted to the Premiership, but he never had his popularity tested. He never actually stood as Prime Minister in a general election. Faced with the prospect of the Second World War, He clearly tried to make the right choices, but, looking in the wrong direction, he was overwhelmed by a tsunami of events. So that's the introduction, but the first question we like to ask on Random UK Prime Minister of the Week is what was this person like? And I'd say that of the Prime Ministers covered by long history so far, it was the most difficult to establish any firm sense of what Neville Chamberlain was like as a person. As I've said, he never faced the public test that a general election would bring, and anecdotes suggest that he was hard-working but not very likeable. He was a member of the Conservative Party, and at least in his twenties was said to detest the Labour Party. Neville Chamberlain came from a political family, and he loyally supported his father's views. And his father clearly had a strong personality, being an experienced, self-made businessman. Neville Chamberlain's older brother was also a successful politician, so it's tempting here to construct an image of a man driven, or at least somehow assisted, by familial rivalry and ambition. He was married, in the meantime, to Anne de Vere Cole, who seems to have been the proverbial woman pushing the man forward. The two of them enjoyed walks in the countryside, Chamberlain enjoyed hunting and fishing, which are perhaps self-consciously gentlemanly pursuits of the era. There's nothing that stands out too much here other than that hatred for the Labour Party 
and a deep rift with Lloyd George after serving under his government early on in his career. Lloyd George himself was a relatively famous Prime Minister who was in charge during the First World War. Now, Neville Chamberlain's lack of affability is perhaps an unexpected quality in a Prime Minister, which perhaps explains both why he never chose to hold an election to legitimise his role, and why support slipped and then collapsed away when he was tested by events. So Neville Chamberlain's personality is difficult to pin down, but certainly an interesting person. Now we'll step back and look at a broader view of the era, and have a quick look at the issues of the time. And we're talking about the 1930s and the lead-up in the 1920s, which of course are very weighty times and very hard to summarise. But here's an attempt. World War I ended in 1918, and afterwards there was something of a sigh of relief in the 1920s. However, old wounds soon reopened, not least with the Wall Street crash in 1929, which in itself exposed long-standing issues in the UK's economy. The UK at the time was a country saddled with ageing Victorian infrastructure and increasingly uncompetitive industries. The country was trying to embrace new technology, but was failing to stay ahead of more modern rivals such as the US. Unemployment was high during the 1930s, leading to a series of hunger marches and the incessant rise of extremist politics at either end of the political spectrum. So that's the broader background for the UK. Now let's look a bit more specifically at the lives of people in the UK at the time. We've mentioned that there was an ageing Victorian infrastructure and increasingly uncompetitive industries, and these traditional industries included coal mining, textiles and shipbuilding. They were all in decline during this period. Although jobs in car manufacturing and the electricity industry would also rise during those years. In the interwar period, house building in the UK would boom, along with the sales of things like electric cookers and radios. Cinemas were also becoming increasingly popular. At this time in the UK, the school leaving age was 14. And we've managed to find a few statistics. A labourer working in the engineering sector earned one shilling and two pence per hour in those days. That would have been £3.74 or $4.63 in today's money. An assistant at the Woolworths retail store would have earned about £95 a week in today's money, or $117. So that's the briefest overview of the UK at the time. What was happening in the US, however? Well, just as Neville Chamberlain became Prime Minister, Franklin D. Roosevelt was in the fourth year of his term as President. And this was 1937, which was also the year when Michigan celebrated the centenary of its statehood. The next question we're going to answer is who could vote in the UK at that time? Well, as we've said, no one actually voted for Chamberlain. However, by this time, the Equal Franchise Act had granted equal voting rights to men and women over the age of 21, which meant that 21 million people, that's 71% of the electorate, voted in the last elections before World War II. Those took place in 1935, and there wouldn't be more elections until the end of the Second World War. So that's a bit of the wider background. Now back to Chamberlain himself. 
Chamberlain, as we've said, was from a political family, with his father being an ambitious but ruthless self-made man who had forged his own path in life. His father did not go to university, he ran his own company, and apparently as a result he detested aristocracy. So Neville Chamberlain's father had served in a number of governments around the turn of the 20th century, being involved both in prompting and winning the Second Boer War of 1899 and 1902. Neville himself was born in March 1869 in Birmingham, and he was the third of five surviving children. The family had many ties to the Birmingham area, his father running his business there and rising to become mayor of the city. Neville was a middle child, and his father's political ambitions had initially been focused on his older half-brother, Austin, who himself had a significant political career, serving as both Chancellor of the Exchequer and Foreign Secretary, and apparently he even won the Nobel Peace Prize. So it's clearly an ambitious and a political family. Whilst his brother had been destined for politics, Neville had been expected to go into business, which was why he studied metallurgy at Mason College, a predecessor for Birmingham University. Perhaps owing to that impressive father and older brother, he himself seems to have been pushed around by the tides of life, having not enjoyed his schooling at the prestigious rugby school or his university education. And that drift only seemed to continue when he entered the business world. With his father's backing, or possibly his father's attempt to get his son out of the way and find him something to do, at 22, Neville Chamberlain went to the Bahamas for six years in an attempt to develop some farms there. But the whole scheme failed and lost the family a great deal of money. He returned and had a successful career in business, but things took a turn towards politics when he became a councillor in 1911, then an alderman of Birmingham in 1914 and then Lord Mayor in 1915, and he took a particular interest in city planning and housing reform. Chamberlain entered national politics when he became the Director of National Service in 1916. This meant he was the person with particular responsibility for organising people conscripted to the army. Lloyd George, who we mentioned previously, he was Prime Minister at the time, but his lack of support for Chamberlain in the role led to a rift that would never be healed between the two men. Chamberlain eventually resigned from the post and returned to Birmingham in 1917. At the end of the First World War, he re-entered national politics, where he stood for office as a Member of Parliament for the first time. He won his Birmingham seat for the Unionist Party, the party that would become the Conservative Party, in 1925. Chamberlain was 49 at that time, being the oldest person to become an MP, who then subsequently became Prime Minister. During the 20s and 30s, his career developed in politics. He first became Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1923, but the Conservative Party lost power only a few months later to usher in the first ever Labour government, headed by Ramsay MacDonald. So that's the early life of Neville Chamberlain, but the next question we're going to answer is how did he actually become Prime Minister? So we've entered the 1930s now, and Chamberlain returned to the role of Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1931, in a national government. This is a coalition government put together when the previous Labour government collapsed due to a financial crisis. Ramsay MacDonald continued as Prime Minister for a while in charge of this new national government, 
but due to ill health, he was replaced by Stanley Baldwin in his third term as Prime Minister. And that happened in 1935. But these were tumultuous times and Baldwin himself resigned from the post two years later. Apparently he'd only ever intended to stay two years in the job, and during this his third time in office, and with storms brewing in Europe, it seems he resigned for someone who's more up to the task, recommending Neville Chamberlain for the job. Now at 68, however, Chamberlain himself wasn't a particularly young man, in fact he was one of the oldest men ever to take up the job. And often in moments like these, a Prime Minister will call a general election to gain further legitimacy in the job from the general public. However, an election had already been held two years previously, and due to his own relatively advanced age, Chamberlain was already viewed as something of a temporary Prime Minister, only in charge until the next election when someone younger would take his place. He therefore didn't call a general election, and as it turned out, his popularity with the general public would never be tested with a national vote. His premiership began in 1937 and ended in May 1940, eight months into World War II. So Neville Chamberlain is now Prime Minister, and what were his biggest achievements in the job? Well, perhaps I'm asking the wrong question there, because it's more about what he's famous for. And Chamberlain is undoubtedly remembered for the phrase, peace in our time, which he is reported to have said after returning to England triumphant because he had reached an agreement with Hitler, not realising that Hitler's signature was not worth the paper it was written on. Chamberlain was greeted as a hero for helping to avoid war. With the benefit of hindsight, however, he's been seen as credulous and even naive for assuming he could trust one of history's biggest tyrants. Nevertheless, the quote that he is supposed to have said is in fact a famous misquote. On the 30th of September 1938, he said, I believe it is peace for our time. So it's not quite peace in our time, as is famously mentioned. That quotation is from the 30th of September 1938, but on the 3rd of September 1939 is his other famous quote. Now, if you want to see the whole quotation, I'm sure it can be found somewhere. But basically, this is the quotation where he says that he'd asked the German government to withdraw its troops from Poland, but that they hadn't done so by the specified deadline. And, as the quote says, consequently, this country is at war with Germany. So these aren't achievements as such, but they're clearly the reasons why Neville Chamberlain will be remembered. This is the reason why he's one of the most famous pre-World War II Prime Ministers, not least because he appears in practically every documentary about World War II. However, his Prime Ministership wasn't all about the war. He was Prime Minister for three years, and was apparently much more interested in domestic policy than foreign policy, even though foreign policy eventually dominated his downfall. He brought in holiday pay in 1938, and the 1937 Factories Act limited the hours that could be worked by women and children. Why did Neville Chamberlain stop being Prime Minister? Neville Chamberlain's response to the war, and the reason for the rise of his replacement, Winston Churchill, is one of the many much-commented aspects of the Second World War, and the research done to put together this quick introduction to Chamberlain could never be up to the task. Apparently, Chamberlain's legitimacy as a war leader ended with his misquoted Peace in Our Time gaffe. It was, of course, well-meaning, but sadly being well-meaning is a woefully inadequate characteristic for a war leader. 
Chamberlain had fought for peace, it could be argued, but this meant that when war broke out, he became a target for critics who said that he'd left the country woefully unprepared for conflict. Nevertheless, he stayed in office for eight months after war was declared. Early campaigns did not go in the Allies' favour, prompting challenges to Chamberlain's leadership. As the war continued, support drifted away and then collapsed for Chamberlain, in favour of the more committed Churchill, who, it is perhaps worth noting, seemed to make all the right moves just as Chamberlain was making all the wrong moves. People wanted a man of the moment, and Winston Churchill was happy to fulfil that role. Chamberlain was replaced by Winston Churchill as Prime Minister on the 10th of May 1940, and he would die only six months later of bowel cancer at the age of 71. Why is Neville Chamberlain remembered? Well, he made the wrong call, clearly, but at least he tried to stop the war before it began. It doesn't seem that he was very well liked, and in making his agreement with Hitler, he chose to put his trust in entirely the wrong man, and his own reputation suffered as a result. Nevertheless, he's remembered for his key role during those tumultuous times. That's just a brief introduction to Neville Chamberlain, Birmingham's only Prime Minister. Of course, even as I was reading this, I could tell that there were many details there that are missed out. There are many opinions about the events that took place here. So once again, please just see this as a starting point to do your own research if you're interested in this subject. Thank you for listening. If you've liked this episode, please do give it a like and share it if you can with any like-minded people. Thank you for listening. This was Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. The 40th Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain the World War II Prime Minister who did not bring peace in our time. Goodbye.